of the world as we know it, and we feel just fine on the next two episodes of Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. In the first part of this two-part series, Garrick and I talk for the first time ever about R.E.M., about the end of time, and about R.E.M.'s hit song from 1987, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. To learn more about the end of the world than R.E.M. ever dreamt of knowing, take a look at the chapter by Russell Moore in the book A Theology for the Church, edited by Danny Aiken and published by our friends at B&H Academic. That's A Theology for the Church by our friends at B&H Academic. For this and many other excellent theological resources from B&H Academic, go to their website, bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Well, one of our faithful listeners and Patreon supporters, Brian Jenkins, asked us to do an episode on eschatology, to talk about eschatology. And so just if you're wondering what on earth is going on with Patreon supporters, what that even means, you can go to this wonderful place, patreon.com slash three chords in the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Go to patreon.com slash three chords in the truth, and you can become a financial supporter of this particular program. That's right. You can clothe our children. You can put food on our tables. Our livelihoods depend completely upon—no, just kidding. None of that is true. For those of you who already support this podcast and you are saying thanks for this crazy thing that we do here by supporting us on a a monthly basis, we just—we want to say thank you. It baffles us. It means so much to us when— there's a change in the level of support, whether it's you know by amount or by people. It's hard to explain how much of a head-scratcher that is and how happy it makes us that there's people out there that enjoy what we're doing so much that they would want to send a couple bucks our way. Now, maybe that has nothing to do with it. Maybe you just really like notebooks and coffee mugs and whatnot, which that's fine too. So we're just so grateful for all of you. We're always kind of thinking about how can we make this this valuable to you and and how can how can we give more stuff for this wonderful support you've given us so we're always thinking through that if you are listening and and you enjoy what it is that we do here you find it helpful for you and your thought or your ministry or whatnot Timothy gave you the website it'll be in our show notes we invite you to come along with us and support this thing we do financially so thank you to everyone and we hope that season three which will be coming at some point, is even better. And just as part of the ways that we say thank you, one of the ways we say thank you is we listen to you when you ask for particular topics. And this is one of them on eschatology from our friend Brian. We're we're men of the people, 
right? So, Brian, here we go, talking about eschatology. What is eschatology? We're going to go ahead and start with the very fundamental, simple definition that goes no deeper (laughs) than a word study, which is not something I would recommend to anyone. But eschatology, by its very name, is really the, the study of the end of things. It's the study of last things. It is a look into what is called the eschaton, the end of our world as we know it. And usually that looks a certain way. When people say or think eschatology, I'd say nine times out of 10, maybe eight times out of 10, somewhere around there, the vast majority of time, folks are thinking about specifically all of the crazy apocalyptic world on fire, sun goes you know, dark, moon goes red, all of these crazy events that are indicating the inauguration of the end of the world that are described in the, the last book of the Bible in Revelation. And certainly those things, those events are a part of that. But we want to focus on a bigger picture, and we, we want to do that for some very specific reasons, but we'll get into that. And so, a lot of people have different experiences with eschatology, right? I was in a Bible study in high school. It was being led by a couple of the moms of some fellow football players, and as a senior in high school, they led us through the book of Revelation in a Bible study, and I don't remember a thing. I just remember, man, this is really strange. And I remember getting a manila folder of charts. And I mean, just it was it was nuts. And that made no sense. It didn't stick with me. I think that's kind of probably the typical experience for those growing up in this in the American evangelical church. And and then later in life, in my 30s, I, I go to seminary, round one of seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a seminary known for a, a very particular view of eschatology. And so when people hear that, one, they automatically assume that I have this particular view. Number two, they assume that that's kind of like all we talk about at Dallas Seminary. And the reality is that while I learned kind of the content and the arguments for this one particular view of eschatology, I also, because of some wonderful professors that I sat under, also learned that the same thing about all of the views. And in a very ironic thorough discussion. And truly, I guess my degree in historical theology, I just didn't spend that much time talking about it, thinking it wasn't a focus of my program. It was an aspect, but not a focus. And then I come here for my PhD, and I stumble into one of the authors that I am concentrating on, who everyone who listens to the podcast know has become a theological hero of mine. And in the discovery of Herman Bavink, I discovered a way of viewing or a way of thinking about eschatology in a much bigger picture that even if I don't hold every view that Bavink holds, which I don't, I have adopted his way of looking at the most important aspects of this subject. And so, from my experience, as often happens in this, it's very shaped by some really strange fundamentalist stuff. Shocker. Is a record (laughs) playing backwards involved at all? No, it isn't, actually. This does not involve any backward masking or anything like that, such as I was taught. But I was, from the very youngest, and especially once I was about 
eight years old and we ended up when we ended up in these fundamentalist churches. And from that point forward, it was just weird and terrifying at that level. Um, I mean, because everything in the news was perceived as something that pointed to the end of time. I remember a real discussion, which I look back and I'm thinking this is comical, but over whether Mikhail Gorbachev's birthmark on his head yes. might have something to do with the end of time I, and the mark of the beast. I remember something about that. I mean, that was real. This was all blended with these fears of communist Russia. I remember in 1988, this booklet that got sent to all the churches that was 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And I was, that was all, all of it had to do with that Jesus is going to snatch his people out of the world, and then there's going to be seven years of horrific tribulation, and if you didn't pray the prayer and really mean it to commit your life to Jesus, you were going to be stuck on earth during that seven years of tribulation. I feel like right now I have to throw a disclaimer out. Friends, there are brilliant men and women, theologians out there, who hold to some of those views when we talk about about the rapture and the seven years of tribulation and and whatnot um, that hold to those views, but in a very different way than what Timothy has just described. Men and women who reject, who fight against this uh, tendency, this desire of kind of culture to predict times and and to always be looking for the events and, and whatnot. So, Timothy's describing a crazy distortion of a certain view, but that's not the view. So, just have to throw that out there. Right. right. It's not everybody that's that way. It's a, There's a particular strand within that that right. really does. And the thing I remember most is there was a movie we watched a couple of different times called The Burning Hell. Now, I've gone back and watched the movie. It's terrible, but it's terrible. Like, it's terrible as a movie, but it's also terrible. And it was all of these things that could happen just over and over in these. And then it ends up with a guy burning in hell and it was this impressed this kind of feeling about everything to do with eschatology that was terrifying that yeah. was fearful you see torture like you've never seen before hell is called a bottom of pit this means that sinners will be falling, falling, falling forever. There will never be a solid footing under you. In Revelation chapter 9, we read about some horrible creatures that live in hell who will be a part of the eternal torments there. They come up on earth for a five-month period of time to torture mortals, yet they will no doubt return to hell to torment the damned forever. They're called locusts, but are not like any locusts you've ever seen before. Their body is like a horse. Their breastplate is a breastplate of iron. They have teeth like a lion, hair like a woman, and they wear crowns of gold. And so when I got to college and seminary and learned other perspectives, one of the things I really tried to do as a pastor was basically, I'm not going to talk about this at all, which is also not good because I basically avoided talking about the end times at all. I am not going to talk about the end times because I don't want to be like that. And, and so I'm just not going to talk about that. And that's also harmful because if you don't talk about it, you don't teach people, you don't learn to express this in a way that glorifies God, there's part of his word that you're in essence leaving out. And that's what I was really doing. And what I ended up as a pastor of a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I succeeded a pastor who had preached a lot 
on the end times, a lot of things on the end times and how it connects to the news and everything like that. Again, this not as extreme as what I'd been raised in, but still some parts of that going on. He preached a lot on this. And I realized I've got to find a way to preach and teach on this in a holistic way. And that's actually what produced this book I did, Rose Guide to End Times Prophecy. That then I'll never write another End Times book again because a lot of different weird yes. letters came through after that of people who had their own pet theories of the end of time. Why didn't you think about this or what about this? It just strange stuff. But my goal in that actually was to help people have a holistic, broad, Christ-centered view of the end of time. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter what view you hold. You can hold it in a way that isn't centered on Christ, or you can hold it in a way that that is. It's not what view you hold at the end times that causes it to be Christ-centered or not. It's how you hold it and how you emphasize it and what you see as valuable in your particular view of the end. Yeah. So, Today, we're talking about a song. We're talking about eschatology, but we're also doing it via a song that's about the end of the world. And as we were researching for this episode on our own, right, apart for, apart from each other, we went and looked at a, a bunch of songs that are about the end of the world. And I'd always had a collection of these in my head, but when you go out and start searching songs about the end of the world, there are way more songs. I mean, mainstream songs that are about the end of the world than one I ever thought. And then there are songs that I've known forever that I've never thought, oh, that's what that's about. Now, part of that comes from, I've, I've said before, that I'm one who hears music and not words. That's a part of the problem. But still, it just baffled me. And so, I have this real fun list. But I want to hear, like, what are some of the the songs you th- think of? Yeah, so I think of All Along the Watchtower. Mm. That's That really ultimately is an apocalyptic, about the end of time song. Bad Moon Rising yep. by Creedence Clearwater I have Revival. I have that. We don't think about that as being about the end of time, but you look at it, look that's at it. what the song is about. That's right. It really is about the end of time. I mean, two of my favorites are Fight Fire with Fire by Metallica oh, yeah. and The Four Horsemen by Metallica. Yep. Both of those, and, and Metallica, all of their music sounds apocalyptic. That's right. And Megadeth does as well. Megadeth, Dave Mustaine, Megadeth, who, of course, he professes at least to be a Christian, and you start seeing that. And then you get into the the bands like Black Sabbath and Dio yep. and all those like that. They've got so many Iron Maiden, so many songs yep. Yep. about the end of time. They yep. really do. The history of rock music is packed with apocalyptic music. So some other fun ones. (laughs) So one of my all-time favorites, even though for the longest time I only heard the German version, so I had no idea really what it was was saying other than the 99 air balloons. So 99 Luftballons by Nina is is actually these 99 
red balloons, which is what it's translated to in English, they think they're balloons, but they're actually missiles. And so this is kind of, she's actually talking about the escalation of the Cold War and how, here we go, nuclear war, and this is all ending, right? So that's one of my all-time favorites. But maybe my favorite, my favorite end of the world apocalyptic song of all time, though it could also maybe be a song about just going to space, is The Final Countdown by Europe. That's my all-time favorite song about the apocalypse. You're speaking about them being too upbeat, and that really is the case of the song we're looking at. Yes. Which is The End of the World As We Know It and I Feel Fine by R.E.M. That song is actually a very upbeat song. And in fact, the first time they played it in concert, they thought it would produce a somber response from the audience, and everybody saw it as a party song. How could you, yeah. How in the world could you think that was going to produce a somber response? And and that was their perception of it. And yet, that really does seem way too upbeat. The end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. And the lyrics, believe it or not, began with a birthday cake and jelly beans. So let's talk about R.E.M. Let's think through R.E.M. as a band, just reflections, thoughts on R.E.M. as a band. Tell me about We've never talked about R.E.M. We have ever. never. Like, this is literally the first time we've ever talked right. about R.E.M. We've never is right about. here. So what do you think? My first experience of R.E.M. was actually the song we're talking about today, The End of the World um, as We Know It. A friend at the time, I, now, okay, so we would have been in middle school, a friend made me a mixtape of a bunch of music that was so off my radar. Bands that I'd never heard before that I was hearing for the first time. A lot of punk, a lot of Ramones, just a lot of stuff I'd never heard before. And and one of the songs was R.E.M.'s The End of the, uh, of the World As We Know It. And I loved it from the start, right? And loved the song, loved R.E.M. from the start. And basically the golden era of R.E.M. really lasted ended kind of right when I was graduating high school. So I essentially grew up with R.E.M. Their first show that that kind of made them a band, they played in 1980, we'll talk about here in a second. And their last smash record was in in 1997, the the year I graduated. And so I've always loved them. And and I did, unsurprisingly, uh, I did kind of lose track of them after 97, one that's kind of change in personal taste, but also because they they just weren't the same band at that point after their drummer at that time. Was it Buck? No, who was the drummer that had uh, to leave? Bill Berry. Bill Berry, who had an aneurysm um, on stage and, and left the band in 97. It, it kind of changed the band, and I just lost track of them. To me, that's that's a band 
that there's something about it that really does last because of the fact that even if you're not a fan of them, which I wasn't, there's still certain ones that I like. I, I like that song, and I'm going to crank yeah. it up when it comes on, even if I'm not a fan of them as a band. The way you word it, something that lasts, there's actually an article in The Atlantic that we'll link to titled R.E.M., The Best, America's Greatest Band. And the argument is, who else, what other band lasted the way that R.E.M. lasted for this, especially for that 18 years where almost all of the albums that they released went platinum. And the band is not centered on some iconic sex symbol. And the band was was very democratic. And, you know, so it's not like Springsteen where it's Springsteen and then he's got a backup band, right? It's no, these, this is a, a group of, of guys who are a band who make decisions kind of in this democratic process. And uh, so it's a very interesting argument for why, why R.E.M., you know, one of the greatest bands ever. And the other bands that have that type of longevity and that type of relationship are not American. You got the right. Rolling Stones, you could make a case for that. U2. U2 yep. There's a handful of bands you could make that, but none of them are American. Yep. So REM is the only American band that has really persisted yep. in that way. And they started in 1980 when Peter Buck, who became their guitar player, met Michael Stipe at a record store in Athens, not Athens, Greece, but this is <laughs> Athens, Georgia. Georgia. Very, very different Athens. And uh, both of them were into punk music. So like the Velvet Underground, Patti Smith, they were both into the into punk music. And they were both vying, in essence, for the same for the same recordings. They wanted to listen to the same things, and so that connected them. And uh, they were both students at University of Georgia. And eventually, through a mutual friend, they added Bill Berry on drums, Mike Mills on bass, and they rehearsed their first set that they wrote and developed in an old Episcopal church building. Which so I've, it was, which I've gone and seen. Oh the, wow, that's the, amazing! The one time I ever made it to <laughs> Athens, I I had to go see this place, so yeah, that was really neat. That's great. It, was in this old Episcopal church. And so there's something infused religiously in it from the beginning at some level anyway. And they came up with several different possible names for the band. Most of those names we can't repeat. Uh, there are a lot of different ones and most of them we're not going to say on here. One of them that I thought was actually somebody should have named a band that is Twisted Kites. Yep. I thought Twisted Kites was actually a pretty clever name. Yep. Depending on which account you're reading, they either did call themselves Twisted Kite for this first show, this this birthday party that we'll mention, or they considered the name, but they ended up performing without a name, and and when it came time to really have one, they they almost went with Twisted Kites, but ended up on REM, which we're glad. But where did it come from? It was from Michael Stipe, opened a dictionary, dropped his finger, and landed on REM, which of course stands for Rapid Eye Movement, but. It wasn't, they weren't choosing it for that reason. They just let it fall on yep. a particular point in the dictionary. That yeah. was it. I, th I think, in fact, there was a, a doctor who is a medical doctor who's like a specialist in REM, or no, he actually coined the term for REM, called the band one time to talk to them about this. And they just basically said, yeah, it's not, it's not based on that, <laughs> which had to be such a letdown for that medical doctor. Like, oh, okay. Well, nice talking to you. And the sound they developed was really, I would call it a fusion of punk and folk because it has that stripped down, simple, straightforward, sparse kind of punk, do-it-yourself type of music. And yet at the same time, they're using folk instruments, many folk phrasings in what they're doing. And so it really is a fusion of punk and folk in yeah, many ways. It's like coherent punk. <laughs> 
Yeah. As opposed to most punk being in incoherent punk, except yeah. for bad religion. Yeah. It's as if if the B-52s and the Ramones had babies, it would be uh, REM. Like serious babies, yes. right? Critical thinkers. Very, very glum creative. babies. That's right. But yeah, uh, it's, it's that kind of combination. And maybe throw a little bit of, maybe Bob Dylan is the grandpa mm. in that. Yeah, uh, yeah why not? Crazy uncle. Deal. Crazy uncle Bob. <laughs> there we go. So that, it really is. And, and what's one of the things I like about REM is they really are a return to blues and folk roots of rock and roll. And that really had gotten lost as much as I really like so much of the 80s music. We got to admit, by the end of the 80s, the music was very slickly produced, overproduced, over bombastic, and they just kind of strip it all down. It's sort of this rejection of the over-polished, over overproduced music of the mid to late 1980s. And when they come around to 1987, their album Document in 1987, they still had never had a major radio hit. They were still, it was just the only ways they were being known is precisely what you described is somebody gave me a cassette with this this song that was on there. That's how they were getting known. They were wildly popular among many Southeastern United States college campuses, but they still hadn't had a major radio hit of any kind. And in most cases, they weren't even getting played on the radio at all. They were not being played except for college radio. Like the music that you were listening to that was very different, they were underground, almost essentially until this psalm. A lot of folks will call The End of the World as We Know It as kind of their indie rock swung song, right? Like this this was the transitioning song into the kind of the, the mega stardom that right. they would go on to have. It really was. I mean, it was the two songs that came out just very about the same time. This one goes out to The One I mm, Love, yes. which is a, another great yes. song. And It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. Those two came out shortly after one after the other. And this was really their breakthrough I had never heard of REM until those came out um, yep. because, like, like I said, I was I was into much heavier music and I had never even heard of REM at that point. And this album in 1987 document is released, of course, near the end of the Reagan administration. It's at a time when fears of communism were just sort of at their peak. And at the same time, communism, it looked like, was collapsing. But nobody really believed at this point communism was going to collapse. Nobody could foresee in 1987 – the point in 1989 at which the Berlin Wall falls, nobody is foreseeing that at all. Fears of communism are still extremely yep. high. And the last song on side one of this album documents, and we're dating ourselves because we're both there nodding side, side one. Side, yep. <laughs> there used to be the on a cassette, you yep, know, it had two one. different sides or a record had two different sides. The yep. last song on side one was It's the End of the World as We Know It yep. and I Feel Fine. Isn't it unfortunate that they missed by one year the greatest rock year in history? Can you imagine if Document came out in 86? I mean, it would just continue to add, to pile on. It would. So, anyways. But it marks the transition out of, because in 1986, for all I love 1986, it was kind of this peak yeah. of this overproduced, per- slick, everything like glam that. glam rock. It, it really yeah. was. Yep. And so, I think if this had come out in 1986, it probably wouldn't have even been remembered. It took the transition to 1987 it sort of had run its course at that point. Even as an upbeat song, it's still more mature than a lot of the music that we we love to listen to and talk about. That we can't even really talk about on these episodes because they <laughs> they lack the the content to do so. Exactly. So this the lyrics did begin with 
a birthday cake and jelly beans. So Peter Buck and Michael Stipe, they attended this party that was attended also by Lester Bangs. Lester Bangs is one of the great rock and roll writers. He wrote for Cream Magazine, wrote for Rolling Stone, wrote not only about rock, but also about jazz. But they showed up to this party and all there was to eat was cake and jelly beans. And that was all that there was to eat at the party. And years later, Michael Stipe had this dream several years later. And in it, this dream, everybody except him at this party he dreamed about that had only jelly beans and birthday cake had it. Everybody else's initials were LB. So Lenny Bruce, Leonid Brezhnev, Leonard Bernstein, Lester Bangs, everybody except him, their initials were LB. So all those things show up in this particular song. This is inspired by this dream. Another really fun uh, article we'll link to is uh, on a website, and it's about REM's first ever show. Uh, and it's just really, it's just really fun set up and a, a real neat kind of peek into the beginning of this just monster, massively influencing band. If you go through kind of the the history of rock since REM comes onto the scene, the number of bands and and the particular bands who point to R.E.M. as one of their major influences will just shock you. I mean, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, like pointing to R.E.M., I would never, right, I would never make that connection, at least not in those days. Now it makes more sense. But so anyways, that's another fun short read. And so he turns this dream, we might say, into a song. And it's describing, he talks about in at the cosmic end of time, the song begins with, it starts with an earthquake. He gets to a point in the song where he says, tell me with the rapture and the reverend in the right. So he even mentions the rapture in this particular song. And and he does, he uses religious imagery. And it's not just in this song he uses. Michael Stipe uses religious imagery a lot in his music. And he has a Methodist background. He had several people in his family, men in his family, who were Methodist pastors at different times. And I don't know where he gets all of the religious imagery. I'll tell you my favorite bit of religious imagery in R.E.M. is in the song, which I think is an underrated song, which is Oddfellows Local 151. This obscure song that they've got in which he talks about why do the heathen rage behind the firehouse where Pee Wee sits on the wall to preach and he's casting down pearls of wisdom. And and this whole song, this odd little song, is filled with biblical imagery about throwing pearls as wisdom and, and Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do the heathens rage? Why do And he works in this phrase, it's the end of the world as we know it, which I looked up the phrase and it's really interesting. The first time you ever run across this phrase anywhere is in 1972 in the movie Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. And they said, (laughs) if we lose this battle, it's the end of the world as we know it. But that phrase really catches on. You start seeing it after that a lot of different places. It seems to capture people's fear of Mm. nuclear war and of, of the changes, this idea of the end of the world yeah. as we know it. Regarding the lyrics, that Atlantic article puts into words what 13-year-old Garrick never could, right? Eric Harvey, who write, writes the article, says that this song is, he calls it a rapid-fire series of dream logic non-sequiturs 
that amounts to Rock's single most completely unsingable classic anthem. And that is so true. Like, if you don't have liner notes, or like a friend of mine uh, who wrote down the lyrics on a piece of notebook paper, well, I guess we, don't, we wouldn't use notebook paper anymore, right? You have the internet. But that was the only way to be able to sing along with that song back then. It just, it was impossible, especially for someone like me who hears music but not words. I could never ever get that down, right? There's just just lines that stick with me because he says it enough or he slows down enough. And it's just, it's an onslaught of very creative and intelligent, brilliant language and lyrics. And you see in this, and, and that's part of what I think you're getting at right there, even though this is talking about cosmic and global end of time, it really is a deep look into Michael Stipe's own self. It's really him staring into himself and at a screen. Because when he describes where he got the lyrics, here's what Michael Stipe had to say. He said, the words come from everywhere. It's a lot of stuff I'd seen when flipping TV channels. It's a collection of streams of consciousness. That's what he has to say <laughs> about where it actually comes from. And here's what's fascinating to me. Even though he's talking a lot about the end of time in the song, there's nothing connected. There's no goal. There's only a flow of randomness yeah. within Stipe's inner self. And he uses this phrase, streams of consciousness, which of course comes from a psychologist named William James. And somewhere in 1890, William James has this idea of the stream of consciousness. And he talks about how in a stream of consciousness, there's just basically these random thoughts that flow and they're not connected to one another. They flow together. And that's this notion of stream of consciousness. And it really becomes a hallmark of modern literature. You look at James Joyce's Ulysses, where much of that book is written in this sort of stream of consciousness in certain portions of it. And this becomes really a mark of the modern self in certain ways, of this turn away from the cosmic and the global and a turn into one's own self. Yeah. It really is. There was an, another song, you know, years after, and we've talked about it, years after this song, that lyrically had a lot of the same feel to it, right? And it was another song that a friend wrote down for me on notebook paper so that I could remember it, right? And uh, when we've talked about Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, it's another one that just is a barrage of of lyrics and, and references and whatnot. But there's a chrono logic to it, right? Like, you may not be aware of it if you don't know the history, but once you do know the history, oh, this makes sense. It's hard to make sense of this is the end. And of the I think world. the contrast between those is really important because in one of them you have a boomer born in 1949, mm -hmm. Billy Joel, who is writing this very linear. And even though there's a despair and a frustration with the world as it is, there's still this linear logic to it, and it's looking forward to something. It's right. yearning for some reality that's beyond. You've got this next generation represented by Michael Stipe, and it's not linear, yeah. and it's not looking at events outside himself. It's a deep yep. staring inside of himself. And in fact, the repeated response in the chorus is, it's time I had some time alone. Right. <laughs> it's time I had some time alone. In other words, at the end of the world, I'm, I'm getting yep. to be alone. And so what does the end of the world as we know it bring? It brings time alone. I'm alone 
The world is ending, and yep. I feel fine. The world is on fire, as Billy Joel has said. But Billy Joel, as a boomer, so it's time for action, right? We have to, let's do something to put out the fire. Michael Stipe is well. I'm just I'm I'm gonna kind of sit and contemplate as things come to an end. I'm gonna kind of reflect on that. I'm gonna dive deep into me. Yeah. <laughs> and so this this song really does it marks a social and cultural shift that we see happening in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, this didn't cause the shift. It reflected yeah. a shift that was already taking place, this sort of introspective existentialism. I determine my own endpoint. I am my own goal. I establish what I am. It's all up to me in this. And as I said, it didn't cause this shift or this change, but it reflected it because this really has become the American ethos in many different ways of I create the who of who I am. And you even see it in so 1992 in the Supreme Court decision related to Planned Parenthood. Anthony Kennedy writing the Supreme Court's case in this or the decision in this, he says this, and you, you see this is a is a reflection in some sense of, of this sort of introspective existentialism. I create who I am. I create my purpose. I just look inward. And what Anthony Kennedy says at this point, he says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of the meaning of the universe, of the mystery of human life. At the heart of liberty is the right to define all that yourself. Now, I don't know if Anthony Kennedy realizes that. That is an aberration from the entire history of humanity that is a unique and distinct expression that comes out of late modernity in the late 20th century that ultimately just does end up with people staring deep in themselves, trying to find their authentic self, looking for purpose inside themselves. Sounds like my 14-year-old daughter. That's what reminds me of yeah, oh, you really do it, i mean it's just it's it, it is the mentality that has emerged i find it interesting that one of the forms of alternative music that comes out of this is actually called shoegaze music R.E.M. is not a shoegaze band. Nope. They're not playing that. This is like My Bloody Valentine, Jesus and Mary Chain, yeah. ones like that. But you also think, visually speaking, I, I immediately picture Nirvana and Smells Like Teen Spirit, exactly. right? That video, precisely what he, for the most part, seems, even when he looks up to sing into the microphone, right? The hair, hair covers the face. And in fact, one of R.E.M.'s albums is called Murmur, and it's called that from the mumbling of the words. And again, their music is almost a dialogue with myself mm -hmm. and not really engaging the audience, but it's almost a self-dialogue looking into the self. And Nirvana, is a, they're the heirs of this in they some are. sense. And so one of my all-time favorite bands is Pearl Jam, right? But one of the just extremely frustrating things about being a fan of Pearl Jam is there's probably half of their music where without lyrics, I have no idea what they're saying. And 
interesting that you talk about this dialogue with yourself because Pearl Jam was also one of their those very first bands that started kind of kicking for different reasons, but kind of kicking against the goads when it came to liner notes, right? You didn't always, sometimes you didn't have their lyrics and it was impossible to know what they're saying. I still uh, can't remember the lyrics to one of my favorite songs of theirs, Even Flow. I still, you know, I, I have to still look up the lyrics every time I want to sing along with it. Thank goodness for Apple Music that just puts it just right there. Just a few there. days ago, right. I was listening to Yellow Leadbetter, yes. which is such a great song. Oh. And the funny thing is, it's one of my favorite songs to play on guitar because mm. it's just this great oh, guitar gorgeous. song. And I was trying to remember, does it have lyrics? And I was I couldn't even yes, remember if it, it had lyrics. So just, I, I, list, I played, you just get to make played them up, it. Though. I played it and I realized, it doesn't even matter that it has lyrics. That's they right. have no meaning. It's, they have nothing to do with the song. They have nothing to nope. do with the music. And that's why I couldn't remember that's if right. Yellow Leadbetter even had lyrics in it. <laughs> As long as you know the tone and the notes, you you could make up your own words to go there. I, I actually, when I play it on guitar, I actually prefer it without the yep, lyrics. Yep. <laughs> it's a much better song Gosh, without I'm the lyrics. I'm so with you. But it's this inward turning that you really see, this this inward turning, and it does. I mean, grunge is sort of the, the outgrowth of this. Mm-hmm. It's suddenly this goes heavy. It's still the same the same type of music in this, even though it's not stylistically the same. The attitude of it is is really the same. And this song, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. It has remained mm. so culturally powerful. It really has remained culturally powerful. I was looking up some different things on it in 9-11, after the attacks of 9-11. This is a song that was put on the no playlist in most radio stations because they said we don't because like people yeah, are that's, uh, a bad, that's a bad optic right. let's not put that out there so it, it has a it has a power still this was the most fascinating thing i found out earlier in 2020 so early in 2020 when everything started hitting to do with covid what happened was the downloads of this song went up 184 <laughs> percent uh, man that is that is such a f- I say fun fact, <laughs> maybe fun's the wrong word. I would love to know other similar statistics, right? Like what other trends have we seen from that? That's just, it makes sense. And at the same time, it's just, it's wow. That's crazy. So Christian eschatology. Right now, Brian Jenkins is listening saying, you said you're talking about eschatology and all I'm getting is REM. <laughs> so Christian eschatology. It's more like Billy Joel's song, kind of, sort of. It's an eschatology of hope. Now, not a hope that's found in ourselves. The world is burning and we got to do something to fix it. It's it's a hope because of the God who is in control of creation, his creation, both its beginning and its quote-unquote end, right? And so, there's four truths about Christian eschatology that we get from the early creeds, right? And, and Timothy, we can just go back and forth on this one. Number one, that it's centered in Jesus, where the creed says that he ascended to the right hand of the Father from which he will return. I know I've said this before uh, in different contexts, but I will never forget the words of one of my early church history professors who reminded us, if Jesus does not return, then you and I are not saved. If we leave out 
his return, right? His, his, so, so he dies. There's the resurrection, the raising. Let's not forget the ascension because he goes to be with the Father. That's kind of important, but it's, it's important also because he will return for his people. And if he doesn't, if we leave that out, like you said when, when in your early days of pastoring, then you've truncated the hope of the gospel. And we see that as a this contrast because this shoegazing mentality, so to speak, this looking inward, it doesn't get us anywhere in terms of hope. All we get is more of us. And I think what we know as human beings deeply is there has to be something outside of us. We know this. That's why the all we get is a well of despair when we have this introspective existentialism of staring within ourselves. And so that's why it's really important because of the fact that we're looking outside of ourselves. And I would say this, I think that ultimately, if we get focused on a particular plan for the end of time, like one particular chart, mm. so to speak, if here's how it has to happen, we're ultimately doing this inward looking rather than an outward looking. We're just doing it in a different way. We really are because of the fact that one of the things we have to remember is that it does have to be centered in Jesus. Another way of putting it is the future has a name and that name is Jesus. Well, it is time for Toy Box Hero. We are talking about the end of the world in this episode. And so it is fitting that we bring cosmic toys and other items into battle with one another to see who wins in this uh, eschatological conflict that we are about to undertake. (laughs) And so I have one that was actually chosen by multiple ones of my children. They kind of did a group effort here. Family battle. Yeah, this is kind of a family one. And this is what we have here is a favorite toy of two of my youngest children. It is the new Wonder Woman. And so uh, let's see. There we go. Let's see. There we go. Oh, oh, that thing lights up. It lights up. Yes, it seriously lights up, glows in the dark, and you can spread out its wings. Is that a divine spark? Does does, does she have a divine spark from the playroma in in her? Wow, that thing is huge. Uh, It is. It is a massive Wonder Woman in a golden outfit. So this is from Wonder Woman 1984. Golden outfit, massive wings, glows inside so this is also kind of a family ordeal, and that's because what I'm about to present, all three of my children got one, a version of this for Christmas, and at some point, I want to get my own version, but I I have to get a job first before I can do that. So this would be the Bailey family foray into the world of the ukulele. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. That's yeah. That's a good time. Real good time. Yeah. 
This uh, I did. I did. This is my eldest child, my my daughter's ukulele. They all got soprano ukulele, including our youngest, our two year old, because she kept stealing <laughs> her brothers or sisters, and so we got her the same brand. It's just made of a much more indestructible material. So maybe I should have brought hers in there because I really, you know, swinging a very hard plastic Kevlar type uh, ukulele would have given me a better chance, but you know, there it is. I would, I would serenade, I would serenade Wonder Woman, I guess with beautiful Island type music. Who knows? Who knows? I I I think our only hope is that she's a little bit like fluffy in uh, the (laughs) Harry Potter. That's right. In the first Harry Potter, maybe the ukulele can be utilized if it's played appropriately to calm Wonder Woman so. uh, down, so. but uh, I, I actually don't think that Wonder Woman gets calmed in <laughs> that particular way. <laughs> Maybe I could play her some sweet '80s music. I, which, listen, I've 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 played a lot. I've played a lot of Guns and Roses on the ukulele recently. So I tried to learn. I tried to learn Joan Osborne's "One of Us" today before recording, but it's got the chord E in it, which on the ukulele is really hard really hard so i couldn't couldn't make it happen yeah i just think wonder woman is not going to be impressed by ukulele Uh, Uh, i mean i don't think that she's going to be i think that man i'm trying to think of something i I don't think she takes serenading her i mean she's more as a yeah more as a heavy metal girl right like she's yeah, she's impressed by a guy who flies an airplane, a fighter pilot that impresses her. Um, I, I think I think Wonder Woman kind of comes through here and destroys Tiny Tim and his ukulele. Yeah. And what if I was wearing a bomber jacket? Tulips. I could wear oh, a bomber yeah. jacket and, and serenade her. No. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. Stop, you